0: This is How We See It, a look at issues that impact our faith and community.
1: For the next few minutes, we'll explore topics with people who are making a difference in our world. This is How We See It. I'm Deacon Mike Sweeney, and our guest is Father Robert Spitzer. Today, there is science-based evidence for God, and Father Spitzer is here to talk to us about that. You've seen him on EWTN, and he's got a whole bunch of books. You actually debated at some point Stephen Hawking. Is that true?
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. on the Larry King Show, along with his co-author, Leonard Mladenov, and Deepak Chopra, yeah, back in 2010. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I can promise you, I will not challenge you anywhere near that today. (laughs) Challenge away, I'd be happy to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I'm capable, but we'll give it a whirl. All right, so Father Spitzer, can you start at the beginning, the belief, the Big Bang, believing in the Big Bang does not mean that God didn't create the universe, but quite the contrary. Can you talk about that?
0: Sure. In fact, uh, the Big Bang Theory was actually put together and was originally proven by a Catholic priest. His name was Father Georges Lemaitre. He you know, took his PhD at MIT, was a colleague of Einstein's, actually put the theory out of the expanding universe and the Big Bang. It wasn't called the Big Bang at that time, but he called it the day before there was no yesterday. And in any case, he put together that theory. He presented it to Einstein. Einstein rejected it originally. And then after a while, he saw very clearly that it had to be true when he saw Hubble's survey of the heaven. So um, essentially, the whole community changed their mind, Hubble and Einstein and Lemaître. There's a very famous picture of them put together. And there he is, this Roman Catholic priest in the middle of these two stellar giants confirming the Big Bang Theory. But to get to your question, it is true that the Big Bang Theory confirms The creation of the universe, because in a way, the Big Bang is not a replacement. The Big Bang just didn't happen out of nothing. And that's the key thing to remember. If prior to the Big Bang, our universe was nothing, then clearly the only thing nothing can do is nothing. So when our universe was nothing, it could never have moved itself from nothing to something because the only thing it could have done was nothing, and therefore something else, something which transcends our universe, would have to create the universe from, as it were, beyond it, would have to create our universe out of nothing, and that transcendent creator outside of the universe, that's what we would mean by God. By the way, that would apply to, you know, if there are sometimes physicists propose things like multiverses or oscillating universes, but all of them, as I show in my book, all of those models, based on good physical evidence, also have to have a beginning, and a beginning, an absolute beginning of physical reality, absolutely implies a creator. It does not go against the creation of the universe.
1: And the book that you referenced is Science at the Doorstep to God?
0: Correct. And that's a book just put out by Ignatius Press, well, about a month and a half ago.
1: Very nice. What was it in the photograph that made them say, "Yeah, okay, God is real"?
0: It wasn't so much in a photograph that that occurred. The photograph was Lemaitre and Einstein and, and Hubble together. What the evidence they discovered was what was called red shifting. And to make a long story short, the further out you know we look, so we we're looking at galaxies from our Earth. And the further away you get, the further and further galaxies, the greater the red shifting. Now, I'll just say this, and you'll have to take my word for it, but it's very validated. The greater the red, the intensity of the red shift, that means the greater the velocity of objects moving away from us. So, as we move further and further away, we see that objects are moving away from us faster and faster. Now, once that was proven, and that was proven in 1927, then it would mean the only explanation is Father Georges Lemaitre's explanation. The universe as a whole has to be expanding. And the things that are further distant from us, that means instead of things moving away from us in the center, everything is moving away from everything else. It's like a bunch of dots on a balloon. And so as you blow up the balloon all the dots are moving away from all the other dots. But if you pick a single dot, you can see that the dots that have more distance between them, more space between them, as that space stretches and grows, you can see that they're gonna move away faster. They're gonna be covering more distance per second. And so that's how Lemaitre explained it. And so when he did, he actually showed mathematically that the universe would have to be somewhere along the lines of 18 billion years old. Now, of course, he had telescopes at Mount Wilson and so forth in those days. We have much better telescopes today. Oh, yeah. And now we know that the universe, because of that imaging from newer telescopes plus the satellite imaging, we know that the universe is now 13.8 billion years old, plus or minus 100 million years. And that is really well confirmed by about eight, nine different data points.
1: Your book really covers a lot. It also touches on the idea of near-death experiences, and that's where a person Mm -hmm. dies. And we often hear stories, you know, a person passes away and they sort of see Uh themselves from above and everything else. Some have said that Mm -hmm. this is sort of the brain shutting down and just kind of producing these Mm -hmm. images. But what do you say?
0: You know, there's a lot of physicalist explanations out there. One of them is the brain is shutting down. Another is just anoxia, right, a lack of oxygen to the brain. Another one would be stimulation of the parietal lobe. Another one is called dreamlets and so forth. But here are three major differences between a hallucination and a near-death experience. In a near-death experience, everything that the patient experiences is reported almost 100% accurately. So, for example, you take this blind kid, Bradley Burroughs, He's 16 years old. He's never seen a thing in his life. He has no visual image whatsoever in his physical brain to hallucinate. He goes right outside the hospital, and as he's sitting, he's at the kind of the roof of the hospital outside, and he's looking down onto this very snowy scene, and he sees these kind of railroad tracks grooved into the snow and a big cluster of trees in the foreground going outward. And so as he's standing there looking at all this, a tram passes by. And it has a big, huge sign on the back of it with an arrow pointing to the right. And it just chugs right down those tracks and goes into the grove of trees. Well, as you know, trains have schedules. Trams have schedules right down to the second. And so the minute Bradley Burroughs, the blind boy, minute he dies, he basically has no electrical activity in his brain, that train is passing by the hospital with the big huge sign on the back with an arrow pointing to the right and is going right down that snowy uh, set of tracks into the grove of trees exactly as he reported it. So the first thing is, is, hey, wait a minute. That is a 100 percent accurate scene outside the hospital, not inside the operating room where the boy's physical body was. By the way, the boy's physical body didn't see anyway, but he's now outside the hospital describing 100% 100% accurately, a scene that took place when he clinically died on the table, no electrical activity in the brain, and he's describing it 100% accurately. With hallucinations, stimulation of the parietal lobe, anoxia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the brain shutting down, etc. There's just, they're notoriously inaccurate. All of the hallucinations explanations are notoriously inaccurate. And more than that, they're not just notoriously inaccurate, they're generally totally false. So they're like images that have nothing to do with reality. With near-death experiences, all those things are reported nearly 100% accurately. The second major difference is, in order for you to hallucinate anything with your physical brain, and that, of course, is the point of a physicalist explanation, is to show that the physical brain is doing this, that there's not some soul outside of the physical brain which is the locus of consciousness right so essentially if the physical brain is going to hallucinate i don't care if it's stimulation of the temporal lobe the parietal lobe i don't care if it's dreamless i don't care if it's just plain old drug-induced hallucinations anoxia brain shutting down every single one of those things requires electrical activity in the brain no electric electrical activity no brain function. However, in near-death experiences, the number one criterion to qualify as a near-death experience is no electrical activity in the brain, flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex. In other words, it's completely different. The near-death experience is taking place when the brain can't do anything, can't think, can't hear, can't see, can't process data. And the physical brain, and the hallucination, the physical brain must have electrical activity. Third major difference, and I'll stop there. In hallucinations, you know, hallucinations produce anxiety, agitation, internal disturbance, etc. Not near-death experiences. The 85% of near-death experiences that are good experiences, there are some that are dark experiences, but that's a different kind of a thing. But the 85% that do... There is always a sense of peace, of tranquility, of harmony with a loving white light, et cetera. People come back peace-filled. They don't have any death anxiety, um, subconscious death anxiety for the rest of their lives. Totally different from the agitation and anxiety that's produced by hallucinations. So hallucination, shutting down of the brain, et cetera, that's just not going to work. As any kind of a, an explanation that really comes close to explaining NDEs.
1: We're talking with Father Robert Spitzer, who is the author of Science at the Doorstep to God. So now father remember this for me my brain capacity is is somewhat limited as my wife would say often. <laughs> so knowing that can you talk about don't believe it <laughs> to believe it. Can you talk about self-consciousness and how does that separate us from lower animals?
0: Yeah, a really good question to get. Just think of it this way. Let's just take a simple example. What we're talking about when we say self-consciousness is we're talking about your awareness of your awareness. In other words, here I'm looking at a smartphone, but I'm not just aware of the smartphone. I'm aware of being aware of the smartphone. And not only that, I can actually be aware of being aware of the, sm- of the smartphone.
1: <laughs> You're making me dizzy, now, Father. <laughs> that's right. I'm trying not to.
0: But in other words, I'm grasping myself, grasping myself. Now, let's see if we can explain that physically for just a second. That would be not just the dog chasing and catching its tail. It would be the dog swallowing itself. And not just the dog swallowing itself, but the dog swallowing itself, swallowing itself. Oh,
1: my gosh. (laughs) Now,
0: In order to do that, the only way that dog could possibly do that is if it were traveling at an infinite velocity. The problem is, is you can't travel at an an infinite velocity in the physical universe. Absolutely impossible. In other words, the only way you can get yourself getting yourself, if it's, you know, to travel at an infinite velocity, because if there was even the slightest split second between you, the grasper, and yourself grasping, the graspee, if I can put it that way, the single split second would mean that you could never get yourself getting yourself. And this is the problem. And the problem is, well, if physical explanation can't do it, then how in the world can we do this every day? No animal does it. Not even a high chimpanzee does it. And I talk about this, you know, with uh, Endel uh, Tolving and all of the good experiments that he has done. But basically, it's unique to human beings. And because we have this ability to grasp ourselves, grasping ourselves, we not only have our own inner universe, and we do, we have our own inner universe, and we juxtapose it to the outer universe. And that gives us two remarkable powers. The first thing is, of course, we could tilt everything toward our inner universe, make it all point to us, Hmm. where the focus and the locus of control is me. So, of course, if you do that, you become egocentric and narcissistic. Or, on the other hand, you could take your inner universe and you could say, I want to invest this in making the outer universe better. So, of course, you could do that, too. I mean, it's an amazing power. You couldn't have a conscience, you couldn't be moral if you didn't have self-consciousness. It would be absolutely impossible. And furthermore, if you didn't have self-consciousness, you wouldn't even view yourself as a continuous existence, right? What's unifying all the images you have all the sensory observable um, images you had since childhood. It's your self-consciousness. You, the human being, not the chimpanzee or the dog, are unifying every single sensory image around one thing, that I'm present in it and I'm present to it. In other words, that self-consciousness that you have unifies you into a story over time. Apes don't do this. And because they don't, they can't move back into their past and see their story as a continuous narrative. Apes can't go into the future and anticipate what's going to happen to them. That's why, when we look at Neanderthals, they didn't bury their dead with grave goods that could be used in a future life, like putting some flints in there and some weapons in there into the grave and and so forth. Mm -hmm. They they didn't do anything like that. They just buried their dead. But not homo sapiens sapiens. After 60,000 years ago, when I believe we got a soul, I believe at that time when God gave us that soul, we started doing weird things. Not only buried our dead with grave goods that could be used in a future life, like we started already believing that the journey did not end here. But we started putting in grave goods that were like fertility goddesses or lion gods, you know, and things like that that would help. So you can see these icons of these religious figures that are buried in there. So human beings become religious. They become mathematical. They become what we call abstract, linguistic, syntactical beings. In other words, we can speak in language Or we can do science. We can tell you how things work, why things work, what kinds of things work in what ways. All these things. Animals do not do these things. They don't want to know how things work or why they work or anything like that. They don't have any body of abstract knowledge whatsoever. And as I would argue, and I do argue in the book, uh, Science at the Doorstep to God, I argue that, yeah, that requires a soul. You're not going to be able to do that with merely physical processes alone. You're going to have to have some ideas from the get-go, what we call the primary organizing ideas that enable us to be intelligent. So in any case, you know, you put all these facts together, and then you look at what human beings did 60,000 years ago. All of a sudden, they just didn't hang around the border of Namibia and Angola. They did that for 140,000 years, right? Hmm. Our genetic ancestors, mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosome Adam, by the way, we carry their DNA with us to this very day. Every human being has the DNA remnant called mitochondrial DNA from our ancestral mother, mitochondrial Eve. Every one of us does. I don't care where you are on the globe. And every man on the globe has the remnant of Y-chromosome Adam. Now, the point I'm trying to get to is for 140,000 years, because our genetic ancestors lived 200,000 years ago, for 140,000 years, we did nothing but crack coconuts and eat bananas on the border of Namibia and Angola didn't do much. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, 60,000 years ago, we become mathematical. We become abstractly linguistic. We become religious. We start burying our dead with grave goods that can be used for a future life. We become artistic, right? We're painting shells and making. We become musical and we start creating bone flutes. You know, the mathematical stuff. We're actually making three-columned abstract bones, you know, that are notched bones that we could actually do multiplying. Sixty thousand years ago, mm-hmm. and I mean, just it happens all of a sudden, all at once. And then suddenly we leave the border of Namibia and Angola. We zoom up to the top of the northern coast of Africa. We cross the straits. We go over into the Middle East. And then from the Middle East, we go down toward the East China Sea and zoom down into Indonesia. We actually master technologies like watercraft and navigation and fishing with nets and hooks. And so we're we're hunting in parties that are very organized with with spears and a variety of weapons showing a plan. Mm -hmm. We're beginning to build colonies that have centers and peripheries according to some organized plan, et cetera. In the meantime, of course, we're not just traveling toward Indonesia and China, et cetera. We're also going in the opposite direction. We're going in the westerly direction, and we go right into Europe, go all the way up to the northernmost frontier of Europe. We cross the Arctic Land Bridge. At that time, the Arctic Land Bridge was sticking out of the ocean, so you could actually walk across it into the new world right and in, into our western hemisphere and then suddenly we come all the way down from northern alaska to the southernmost tip of chile in argentina in uh, south america and we do all of this stuff in about 15,000 years you know so in other words from 60,000 years to about 40,000 years ago We don't know when the actual settlements were made down in South America. But I mean, what we're talking about is we're a completely transformed being. We are not the same as our genetic ancestors for 140,000 years. What was the difference? The difference is the soul, the powers of the soul. And what are those powers of the soul? Yes, abstract intellection, self-consciousness mathematics, which is a part of abstract intellection, and then music and art. So in other words, all the aesthetical senses. And then religion in particular, and not just religion, but the sense of eternal life and eternal journey along with these transcendent beings. And then you look at the geographical urging and the capacity to remember it, to locate it in an organized fashion, like an internal map. I mean, we have all of these things, none of which you could do without a soul. It's got to be. I mean, 60,000 years ago, what anthropologists call the great leap forward was not just a technological leap. It was a mathematical leap, an aesthetic leap, a linguistic leap, and a religious leap, and a transcendental leap, a geographical leap, all in one huge thing that just so happens to be 60,000 years ago. I think that's our first and soul parents are right there what I'm going to call Insulled, Adam, and Eve. And that's where it started. I tell you, evidence is right there in what the anthropologists call the Great Leap Forward.
1: We're talking with Father Robert Spitzer. Father, how long did it take you to actually write this book? And I know you have a ton of resources as well.
0: Actually, this book didn't take too long because I have been working on, you know, like the philosophical proof of God and then looking at the evidence of an intelligent creator and the beginning of the universe. I've been doing that, oh, all the way since 2004 or so, when the evidence became overwhelming. I was still president of Gonzaga University at that time, but I was teaching classes in that my students were very interested in it. Of course, I was always interested in it, but when I saw that my classes were getting 200 students at first, at the oh, well, the reason for that is because I'm the president of the university and they want to take a class from a university president. But in point of fact, they were interested in the material, not me. Good, that's good. (laughs) And so, of course, when I found that out, I thought, oh, man, this is just something that really is touching the heart. And above all, what I really wanted was the faith of these kids who grew up in the scientific generation are highly skeptical. But when I showed them, hey, there's more evidence for God And the soul and life after death from science than ever ever before right Mm -hmm. now i just thought okay i'm going to put it out well i put a book out in 2010 called new proofs for the existence of god contributions to contemporary physics and philosophy now that one was a little more complicated than this one but then i decided to update it because so much new evidence has happened since 2010 that's when i debated stephen hawking and leonard miladinov and all those guys on the larry king show But when it came into 2023, actually, I started the book in 2021. It was so much updating that had to be done. And by the time I was, I mean, the New York Academy of Sciences actually came out and said there was a credible possibility that your consciousness was going to survive your bodily death. Hmm. I mean, wow, imagine that even 10 years ago, the New York Academy of Sciences. I don't think, but the peer reviewed. Scientific evidence for that from near death experiences, terminal lucidity, etc., has now so overwhelmingly good. You might say the preponderance of evidence justified the New York Academy of Sciences doing it. And mm. then when Stephen Hawking changed his mind in 2018 and turned on a dime, when I debated him in 2010, basically he still believed that the universe did not need a creator. And now in 2018, in his final journal article in a very important journal called the Journal of High Energy Physics, in 2018, he and his partner, Thomas Hertog, declared, actually, inflation cannot be eternal. And our smooth universe and a variety of other kinds of evidence, which we can detect with gravitational wave detectors, shows pretty conclusively that the universe, not only our universe had a beginning, but our universe could not have come from a multiverse, if there was a multiverse, mm-hmm. couldn't have come from a multiverse that was eternal into the past, that was born out of eternal inflation. The title of the article was A Smooth Exit from Eternal Inflation. In that article, he basically says, even if you did have a multiverse that occurred out of an inflationary condition, that inflation would have to have a beginning. And then he went on to declare that if there was a multiverse, and he didn't say that you could prove that there was. He just said, any multiverse that could generate our universe would have a very short duration. It would have a small number of bubble universes, most of which would be like our own. Hmm. And that's, you know, when he starts doing that, and then other physicists are out there, Thomas Banks, for example, is writing articles like why I don't like eternal inflation. So I had to update in my 2010 book just to say, you know, the multiverse ain't going to do it, ladies and gentlemen that's not gonna explain our low entropy or our finely tuned constants. Mm-hmm. So at that juncture, I decided to write an updated book that was a little more simple, put in a philosophical proof of God, a contemporary one. It's based on a Thomistic argument, but I just updated it for contemporary logical purposes, and then put in the evidence from physics, especially the new stuff that's coming out from not just Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog and Thomas Banks, but a variety of other people And then I came and put in the new evidence uh, for near-death experiences from New York Academy of Sciences, from the Samuel Parnia, the huge University of Southampton study, et cetera. I needed to put all that stuff in because today there's really no excuse. I mean, even Richard Dawkins has turned on a dime. I mean, this is the father of the new atheism, right? So he's debating Archbishop Williams, the Anglican prelate in London there. So Sir Anthony Kenny, very important analytical philosopher, is moderating the debate between Dawkins and Archbishop Williams. And right in the middle of it, Williams has Zill, Dawkins backed into a corner. Dawkins goes, well, you know, I'm, I'm not an atheist. You know, I'm more of an agnostic. And hmm. Sir Sir Anthony Kenny goes, what? You're, <laughs> you're the father of the new atheism. Yeah. And, and you're now declaring yourself nonchalantly to be an agnostic. Well, that's newsworthy. Yeah, know. yeah, really. So he points it out, but if Dawkins can't maintain his atheism today, um, nobody can.
1: Father, in the okay. last minute we have here, can you tell us how can we get your book? And by the way, I am getting one because you blew my mind away today. But where can oh, we get
0: good. it? Well, of course, you can get it at our Mod Center website. So that's modcenter.com. You can also get it at the Ignatius website. That's ignatiuspress.com, I believe. And you can also get it at Amazon or any of the big online book outlets. You can also, in many respects, uh, many of the your local bookstores, Catholic bookstores will certainly have it, not all, but some certainly
1: do. Father Spitzer, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, honestly, Deegan, thank you so much for, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to spread the good news about the evidence for God.
1: Amen. Our guest today has been Father Robert Spitzer, and this is... we see it thanks for listening to today's program this presentation and others like it are made possible by supporters like you if you'd like a copy
0: of today's program make comments or suggestions and to help us keep this important programming on the air visit myspiritfm.com how we see it